0: Yeah. Um, can we pause for a sec? I'm supposed to yeah. be in another thing. Apparently, uh, <laughs> they're joining. So I'm just going to go and mute for a sec and let them know that I'm not going to be there and that they can do it. Cool. I'll- I'll- Give me, uh, two minutes.
1: Welcome to the Learn Public Podcast, a podcast about successful education companies and how they navigate the space between impact and profit. My name is Theo, and I'm a product manager at Mystery Science, a through K-5 science curriculum based in San Francisco, California.
2: My name is Jim, and I'm VP of product at CLI
1: Studios. We're working to make dance education more accessible. And we are your hosts. Today, we'll be talking about On Deck, an ed startup Focused on the professional learning realm with a particular emphasis on building strong communities first. They recently raised a series A of $20 million led by Founders Fund, and we have something very special in store for you all. But before we get into that, Jim and I just hit our third official episode. You know, originally, it was just our sphere of 20 friends nerding out on ed tech and podcasts and giving us supportive feedback. But Jim, we now have slightly more listeners, so we've entered the realm of listeners who might not have our phone numbers and our email. But we want to hear from you because feedback is a gift. What are we doing well? What could we do more of? What themes in the education space are you interested in? Shoot us an email at learninpublicfm at gmail.com. It would mean the world to us. With that being said, Jim, take it away. Hi, listeners. Theo and I have a treat for you today.
2: Instead of going really deep on a company, like in prior episodes, we will be going deep with a person. And our guest today is Vikram Somasundaram, who is currently VP of business development at OnDeck. And Vic is such an expansive thinker across topics ranging from go-to-market to product, to uh, specific user needs and his range of experiences across K-12,
0: and now lifelong learning also. Vic, it's been a while, my friend. Welcome to the show. I like how you said, treat, setting the bar high. We'll see how this turns out. I think, like you said, been in ed tech for a long time. It's been a lot of fun, mostly focused on K-12, to so lots of uh, learnings there. I started my own company, ran that for a few years through Imagine K-12 at the time, and it was focused on helping Teachers in classrooms get better insights so they could personalize learning for kids and K-12. And Imagine K-12 was the education incubator that eventually was folded into, into YC, Y Combinator. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And it was basically like the YC model just for ed tech. And Jeff Ralston, who's now head of YC, was running Imagine K-12 at the time. So it was his great child along with Tim Brady. So uh, very similar model, etc. cetera. So I did that company for a few years called EduSight, learned a lot, and then reached a point where we realized we didn't think we could scale it and to get to our mission of trying to personalize learning. And so we ended up selling the technology to a Canadian publisher called Nelson. That was in 2018. I spent a little bit of time doing a few things, like every entrepreneur who does something, no matter the outcome, the first thought is maybe I can be a better VC than VCs today. So I tried my hand at investing and realized maybe now's (laughs) not the time and I want to go back to operating for a while. And then I joined a nonprofit, was chief of staff there for a while, which is a very, very different experience, but also learned a lot. And one of the things I learned was I wanted to go back into early stage tech companies, and so that took me to Prodigy, which makes a math game. That's their first product. They're now expanding and making a whole bunch of other products. I spent two and a half years at Prodigy. And a few months ago, On Deck came calling and it was just, we'll talk more about it, but it was just super exciting. The mission really resonated, um, helping ambitious people grow. And so it became really compelling. And as much as I love Prodigy, On Deck became what I got started to get obsessed about. It. And so a few months down the line, here I am at On Deck. And for listeners who might not know about what site, can you
1: explain a little bit more about site, but also like your time at Prodigy? What were you working on there?
0: Yeah. So site was, The core idea was how do we give teachers insights real time so they can tailor what they're teaching or how they're teaching or how they're working with individual students. And the way we started was as a grade book because Mm -hmm. that's where we started with user interviews and anytime we talked about data or how you think about kids uh, and how they're performing, first thing that comes up is grades. Uh, So there was a lot of pain points and so this was also a classic... K 12 ed tech story at the time lots of people have tried and built and you know failed at building the better gradebook. So that was our starting point, but very quickly we realized grades don't really tell you, uh, they barely scratch the surface on what you need to know about a student. And so we started building more of a portfolio that you could collect audio, video, notes, text, any kind of data on a student. And students have their own accounts so they could create their own portfolio as well as well as parents. And so we're trying to create this overall view, also tagged everything to standards. And the goal was by tagging everything to standards, we could start to create this picture of how well someone was doing on a specific skill or competency and where they needed help, where they didn't. And so we we reached a few hundred thousand users. And the challenge was we, we built a great product that teachers and kids loved, but There's a lot of monetization challenges as you and you both are familiar with in K-12. So we can go into that a little bit more. And so that's kind of the roadblock we ran into and learned a lot. And at Prodigy, it was helping implement Prodigy at school. So Prodigy also started, again, classic K-12 ed tech story focused on teachers and students in the classroom. So they started with teachers and the idea was let's make learning math more fun. They built this video game for kids and a few years into it, they got, they, they hit a really strong viral organic adoption curve, teachers spreading the word uh, and really fell in love with product. And their monetization, their business model was interesting where it was similar to other video games, parents opting in for upgrades. So the game experience could be enhanced. So if you're a parent and your kid is really learning math with Prodigy and falling in love, you can choose to opt in for a membership that gets you, that gets your child better aesthetic upgrades, wardrobes, uh, items, things like that. But the educational experience was the same, regardless of whether the student was a paying member or not. And so through that, they built a unique monetization and were able to scale. And my role at Prodigy was how do we then layer in a B2B approach to help schools and districts adopt Prodigy top down, because that would then unlock the next level of learning and growth, because if you now have system-wide insights, and you now have uh, training and things like that supported as part of how the district is teaching math, uh, there's a lot of power there versus teachers individually adapting in their classrooms. So that was the goal. And so we spent two and a half years, they'd been doing that, trying to make that work for a few years already. And I joined, and for over the course of two and a half years, we started building out a team and yeah, growing that part of the business. And then, like I said, on deck came calling, and it was a very interesting, different challenge. So... So Prodigy's monetization
1: model was around, not around educational upgrading, it was around in-game purchases, interesting.
2: And also, and also parent, parent features and parent, parent insight, parent ability to motivate their kids as well to study. Yeah, it's. As a meta layer, it's funny we're like in a, a section on Vic's personal story, but we're nerding out deep into K-12 at tech, which is great because it's such a big part of Vic's story. Yeah. So I think it's awesome. We should we should just go deeper here, run with it, which is Vic, I think I think your kind of personal story and your journey through EduSite first and then into Prodigy, I think does represent a macro shift in K-12 at tech that I've seen, which is the first batch of ed tech companies in a very wide sweeping generalization in like the late 2000s into 2010, all were focused on this holy grail of personalization and data-driven personalization, right? It was all this with this idea of, oh, if we can collect enough data and either automatically take an algorithm and crunch it and do something for kids or surface it to teachers and administrators in some interesting way, then, uh, learner outcomes And then profit, right? (laughs) Something like that in a really simplistic way. But then I feel like after that, that largely was, I don't know if it was disproven, but at least it wasn't, it wasn't quite as linear as that. And then we saw afterwards really a much bigger diversity of different approaches in the product, in the go-to-market, in what fundamental problems companies were trying to solve. Do you think that's fair and, and do you also trace that kind of in the, as you've been looking at this space for a while in King 12?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there was, uh, I've always thought of it as different waves, right? And wave one being, like you said, late 2000s, um, Edmodo, to yeah. some degree, like Class Remind. Uh, Class Dojo Remind maybe more closer to wave two or like, like late wave one, but those companies where it was just take what's working in Silicon Valley and apply it to education, which is user obsession, focus on the user experience, uh, consumerization of uh, technology, right? And turn it into this really fun thing. Don't worry about monetization yet. Get scale, Hmm. uh, free product. And so Edmodo in its earliest iteration was positioning and putting themselves out as sort of like the Facebook for school, like social network for schools. And so that was, uh, it, it went reasonably well, they grew, they raised a whole bunch of money, millions and millions of users around the world, then started to struggle. And then al- along around that time, speaking about gradebooks, that was another popular sort of entry point. Because again, if you talk about data, that's where people go. And at that point, it was like a grade book software was uh, on device, not connected on your desktop in your staff room or in your uh, classroom if you're lucky and built design like it was in the eighties and things like that. So there just wasn't a good user experience. Um, so it felt like if you upgrade that user experience and make it really, uh, easy for teachers, you're going to be able to collect better data and more data, et cetera. And again, you run into that monetization problem of, well, how do you get to the school district to pay? Uh, because teachers are underpaid and depending on the study you read are already spending. Uh, a few hundred dollars each year of their own money to buy classroom supplies. Uh, and depending on geography. And so it's like, you one of, I had a conversation at one point with an investor and he kind of framed it this way. If you think about your audiences in K-12, you've got kids, teachers, parents, uh, school district leaders, uh, and maybe states or bigger government players. Who's going to pay kids don't have money. Teachers don't have money. Parents in public systems, a lot of them are also don't have money to spend on things that could be viewed as discretionary or things that could be viewed as, well, I'm sending my kid to public school, why aren't they paying for this? And then, so that leaves you with school districts or states. And those are the classic top level of it is long sales cycles, bureaucratic, slow to move, all those kinds of things. And there's many layers underneath of why all those things are true. And so that's the challenge every ed tech company, especially in those early waves, kind of ran into. So did we, and I think we really felt like we were committed to let's build a B2B sales approach from day one. Let's get good at that. Uh, and so from the beginning, we were talking to, you know, private schools and individual schools and school districts, uh, learning how to bridge that gap. I think the specific nuance of what we learned was there's still lots of incentives that aren't aligned. So school district leaders spend most of their time thinking about a vast array of things. A lot of which ends up being uh, community involvement, political layer of managing their communities and managing their teams and managing their districts, infrastructure, physical infrastructure, buildings, dealing with snow days, dealing with, unfortunately, things like drugs and guns in schools, those are way more important for health and safety. And they spend most of their time thinking about those kinds of problems. They do have curriculum teams and leaders who spend a lot more time thinking about curriculum and learning. But again, that's, if you look at a school district's budget, software for curriculum or learning or facilitating that is a small, small, small percentage of what they spend their money and time on. And so when you frame it that way, then how do you get their attention and how do you turn this into a pressing thing that they solve? Uh, that's what creates this intensive of you have to almost do iterative improvement and what you see is kind of a race to becoming a one-size-fits-all learning management system. So the companies that, yeah, you do, you do 20 things reasonably well. You don't do any one thing really well. The most successful companies in those waves initially had Modo. Then you got Canvas and Schoology. Google came with Google Classroom for free and kind of up into that market too. And so there, it, it was just really hard to convince school district leaders to spend significant money on this layer of software and this line item in their budget. It's so
2: funny. Theo is probably seeing his life flash before his eyes because he's still <laughs> working in that space right now. <laughs> oh man. I, I love that. This is where getting deep into a primer of the space and I'd love for Theo to jump in as well, but I guess a couple clarifications, right? So when Vic was describing this consumerification of different technologies, first there was basically translating some social patterns into education. And that's what Emoto was, as Vic was mentioning, was Emoto took some of the same colors and visual design patterns beyond even UX, right. And took them into the classroom. It basically looked and felt like a Facebook for the classroom, because there's this idea that learning should be social. And of course, once you built in the social layer, you get better viral growth that way. Some of that born out, some of that didn't. And you can imagine that the posts that Emoto was writing was a lot of it was about assignments rather than about social lives happening. And then some of the gradebook products you're mentioning, gosh, it's just interesting to think about what happened before this wave of technology, right? Teachers were keeping kids grades in paper, paper spreadsheets, right? They had uh, the kids as rows and then they had assignments as columns. And then they were physically writing in scores that they were keeping. And so some of it was just a conservation of, oh, let's just bring that online for convenience, for just workflow optimization. Yeah, so that, and then it's just fascinating how, of course, those things are all connected and they all smush together into this big thing that in the education space we call learning management system into consolidation. And uh, yeah, (laughs) it turns out that,
0: what would you say, Vic? Was it a good business or not? Is the LMS space a good business? It depends on what you're looking to do. I think it's a great business if you're looking to build a reasonably sized, I mean, I'll, I'll rephrase, it probably was a great business in the mid 2000s or 2010s yep. if we were looking to build like a reasonably sized company and have impact. But what this is another learning from edgy is what ends up happening is you spend so much of your time and money in sales and marketing to get over that barrier. And so you, you have to invest in large sales forces that are physically in yep. all these geograph- geographies to build those relationships uh, for deals that are much smaller. So your margins are really low. You're not reinvesting in like product innovation. And so there's a reason that despite decades now of these learning management systems being in market with scale, with access to these kinds of data, we're not seeing that kind of personalization materialize because it's really hard to, we might see it in five to 10 years when they've been able to hire machine learning scientists and things like that. But it's just the proliferation takes a lot longer. So I would say if your main goal was building a good business, making some money and you're comfortable with. This is a sales and marketing first uh, space, not a product first type business. I think one thing that was interesting about what you said was you were saying who, which one of your,
1: I think you were talking about the investor you were talking to, where you're saying like, which one of your customers are going to pay? Your kids are not going to pay. Your teachers don't have enough money to pay. Are your parents going to pay? And I think that's an interesting needle because that is kind of, I mean, maybe to segue into Prodigy, that yeah. is- that is the monetization model for Prodigy. And do you, do you see that there's this kind of this new wave because post COVID where there's this kind of direct to family approach to education that uh, might be
0: exploited? Yeah, I, I think in the, maybe I'll talk about the new wave in a second, but the, the core thing we saw at Prodigy was, um, we fit into the habit of what parents are paying for with the video game side. Right, so parents weren't paying for Prodigy because, I mean, this was kind of secondary, like, yeah, it was great, but they weren't paying for Prodigy because Prodigy is the math solution. They were praying for Prodigy because their kids love Prodigy and, oh, they're learning math, they're having fun and learning math. Great, there's upside. Sure, I'm, I'm spending money on Fortnite. I'd rather spend money on Prodigy and they'll learn right. math along and the
2: way. I think it was important for listeners to understand a bit about Prodigy and that this is a a like social game that has math embedded into its roots, right? So along the way in this open world where you can see other people, your peers, your friends and strangers and interact with them, instead of battling monsters, you're solving math problems. And it just, it, it's a really, really neat product that reminds me of some of the actually highest polished greatest social games of our day, like Roblox and like Minecraft right now. So I think that's important to understand because it, yeah, it, it, I can see how the experience feels very much game first to kids rather yeah. than learning and education first, which for most curriculum driven tools out there, kids are very wise as to whether it's. It's a gamified piece of curriculum or whether it's a true game. And I think for you guys, you guys cracked it in which you were able to make it feel like a true game to kids. And you also deliver learning on top.
0: Yeah, there were a few sort of learnings or principles at Prodigy that kind of led to that. So from the beginning, it was like, how do we get kids engaged, right? If you listen to Rowan or Alex, the co-founders talk about it, their stories are like, when I came home from Kumon, I'd have a stack of papers this thick of just worksheets, and I didn't want to do that. I'd rather go play Pokemon. And so how do we tap into that instinct and get kids really excited about something, that game, and along the way, they'll learn math and practice math, and there's a few things that happen. Now you shift their mindset from, I'm intimidated by math, I'm bored of math, I don't want to sit here and do math, to excitement. Oh, and there's some math here, great. And so they're learning, and you start to see their mindset go from, I can do math, I'm getting better at math and they see the progress and that association builds, right? And then to your other point, Jim, around the it, it, engagement was the core value proposition. Like we're, we're going to help you get better at math with engagement. And we did stuff on the back end with algorithms to make sure that, you know, the types of questions they're getting are at the right level and they're getting leveled up and able to practice new skills. Uh, but for the kid, it's, you're not, it's not visible to you. You see some, we added some badging and things like that, but beyond that, you're not, it doesn't occur to you that you are doing homework, right? You're just more focused on the gameplay experience and you're answering math questions in order to progress. And so from again, tying that back to the parent perspective, right? So you're a parent, uh, and at home, your kid's playing this new thing called Prodigy, maybe the teacher assigned homework on Prodigy, and now your kid wants a membership. So you look into it and, oh, it's actually a math game. That's interesting. Cool. I'll pay for it. And so we, we kind of grouped parents into trusting or supportive. Trusting being they're more hands off. They, they, they're really busy. They don't have the time to get super invested in the day-to-day or the details of their kid's education. So they trust in the system, trust in the teachers. And that's one archetype of parents. We started to flush out. And then the other is supportive where they're more invested and like, Hey, I want to be here, what can I do to help my child uh, succeed and grow and in either of those cases, the key thing was my kid is engaged in something productive, right? And so that that was the pretty interesting insight. And, and on that new wave of like, with COVID, parents are way more aware of what their kids are doing uh, in classroom. Everything is digital. They watched what their kids are doing for months, if not now years. So there is definitely a heightened sense of like, okay, I'm willing to understand this ecosystem and pay for things. But at the same time, it it remains to be seen how that persists. And -hmm. I think what's happened now is you've seen sort of a privatization, quote unquote, of resources. So now you're seeing companies like OutSchool, right? That are sort of competing in this edutainment market, uh, ABC Mouse, which is a competitor of Prodigy as well. Uh, Those companies, including Prodigy, are now growing Because at home, there's now a use case for, I want something educational and I'm ready to invest. It's not the traditional in-school content. It's not uh, necessarily at least, right? There's, you know, you might map skills like Prodigy does or ABC mouse might, but you're not doing what you do in the classroom. And so there's a whole different user flow and experience that those companies are targeting. And so I I don't know that, I, I think that is a viable path for companies in this age group to monetize and build a great business, but it is distinct from like being in classrooms and solving core educational needs in the classroom user flow and supporting teachers, they're just very different audiences and workflows. And so, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how those converge, if at all.
1: Yeah. How how do you think about
0: that macro landscape?
1: Like, do you see these B2C companies? moving up into the B2B world and also vice versa, like the B2B companies moving into the B2C world. I think there was yeah. some like versions of that during COVID, but should be interesting to see what that looks like the next few years.
0: Yeah, it's the same challenge as what we had with w- what LMS has have, right? Like it, if you're in a low margin business, then you only have so much to reinvest. And what you're going to want to reinvest in are your best capabilities and double down. So if you're at LMS, that's sales and marketing. That's what's going to lead to the most growth. You're going to keep reinvesting there more so than in product. And it's the same thing with these B2C companies. If you're in B2C, your type, the, the type of marketing you're doing is obviously consumer facing. It's not large conferences with boots. It may be, but your best bang for your buck is actually channels that reach parents, right? Product is on the consumer side. So there's a whole bunch of things that you're doing there. That's different from what you do. If you want to be meeting school district leaders. And teachers and winning in that space. And it takes a lot to invest and build. And so I think once they reach certain levels of scale, they might be able to successfully build that. And I think, Prodigy, that's what I was doing. Age of learning is, I think, starting to do the same thing. Uh, build out a B2B business, but early days, you have to pick one thing and do it really well. So it'll be interesting to see if they're able to make that transition, because then they have to actually, in a lot of cases, like age of learning and OutSchool, for example, you'd have to build teacher focused products too, which they don't have versus Prodigy would started as a teacher focused product. And so has some of that already built. Right. Right. And I think it's for, for
2: listeners that tuned in earlier to our Coursera episode, that's a great example of the B2C to B business where they started off with uh, free and then premium offerings direct to their course offerings, essentially online courses direct to customers and. Uh, adults themselves. And then some of them took it into their companies and they sold directly to companies. And it's just, it's worth even teasing out, even in this broad landscape of ed tech on the higher ed side and on the um, K-12 side, the enterprise buyers are very, very different. And mm-hmm. very, I don't know if you would agree, but maybe this motivates your move into more of the older learner side. I think on the K-12 enterprise buyer side is this it's actually harder to crack into, um, for, for a variety of different reasons. And so when Theo was asking that question around, huh, are B2C companies going to be able to move up? I think it's actually much harder for companies in that space to move into districts and state level buyers than it is for a company like Coursera to have moved into enterprises.
0: Totally. And, and the yeah. margins are way slimmer, right? Coursera going in the enterprise and sell for hundreds, if not thousands of dollars a person per year. In K-12, well, you're looking at, especially for content, if you, if you start with content, per product, you're looking at like 5 to $10 per student per year, unless you make it like a super core, like we do everything you need, in which case you might be looking at like $30 per student per year, which is a far cry from the revenue and margins you can generate on the adult side. How do you
1: all think about like Duolingo then, because Duolingo is a pure B2C play, but they have B2B implications into both the K12 space through teachers, but also probably some, some overlap with universities as well.
0: Yeah. I think that's where it's like, obviously I don't know the super intimate details of the business, but I think like once you reach certain levels of scale, you can make investments with the TAM is large enough in K12 that you can make those investments and justify it over time. But you want to make sure it's not a distraction from your core business growth uh, and you want to separate the resources, enable them to build, right? And the the key thing here is it's not just a new go to market. You have to build a new, it's it's not even just a new channel. It's literally like new marketing capabilities, new sales capabilities, and most likely new product capabilities for new audiences. So it's a whole line of business you're building and you know, you you could test iterate and it might fail or it might go well. Uh, but like underestimating that is, if you underestimate that and invest too early and not enough, it's gonna die pretty quickly. So to go one level
2: deeper on Duolingo, there's like three potential different B2B markets they could have. One is on the K-12 side where they could sell licenses bulk to districts for language learning. The other is on the higher ed side in which they could do the same for universities and the other is probably on the enterprise side in which they could sell it into companies. K-12, we just covered right, thinner margins. And also you have these teachers that are already teaching a foreign language. So how does that work? Does that threaten labor unions? Does that threaten teacher jobs? Tricky, but not unworkable. Higher ed is a place in which, gosh, like the class sizes are much, much larger. So you could kind of make a case that this doesn't actually replace necessarily. A lot of your offerings in place, this is a supplement on top, this is Especially now that a lot of instruction may stay remote or go remote periodically, that could be an interesting play, but higher ed institutions are also like, you get them one by one, right? <laughs> the margins are better, but actually the scale is worse in K- than K-12 in some ways. When you're selling universities. And then on the enterprise side, I just think about what is isn't job to be done for employers on language learning? That one's tough, right? Because if yeah. you think about Coursera or corporate learning and we'll, we'll get into on deck as well. There's two folds there that are at least very salient for me. One is I want my employees to be better at their jobs, right? Or like transition into a different job and perform better. That outcome is about performance. And the other is I want to retain my employees. And I do that to make sure they feel happy and they feel like they're learning. Does language learning have a role in both of those? It, it's just, it's, you have to squint at it to see it, right? Like does learning a language help people improve in their jobs? Perhaps, but for most jobs, probably not. And does learning a language help retain people in their current jobs? Probably not also. So that one's tough for them. So I feel like when I look at Duolingo, their, their path are not as obvious as some of the other companies that we thought about.
0: Yeah. One thing that could be interesting there is if you take a global perspective, that's where Duolingo might have a market where it's like people in emerging economies or even in, you know, European countries learning to speak English better to get, be better at their jobs for that reason or vice versa, right? It could also be uh, people, English speakers, looking to learn other languages in those regions uh, to do business there. So I think that global translation uh, and growth for that reason, there probably is a decent market there. It's it's not as big as if you could go for every employee in every company, right? And then on the higher end, what's interesting is I think in universities especially, there is a precedent or a pathway to go B to C to B because students especially are paying uh, a ton of money, right? If you're paying 20, dollars a year for your, your degree, right? What's another 500 or thousand for a subscription that's going to mm-hmm. drive something for you. Uh, that's like one textbook, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we've seen some of this work, Top Hat does this to decent effect, right? So, they started as a effectively a clicker in classroom replacement, a mobile app that replaces those clickers for in-class participation and uh, just bundle that as part of textbooks. And so you just buy a subscription for your mobile app as part of your textbook purchase and then use that to get lots of professors because for professors, like, hey, it's no cost for me and it makes my classes more attractive. Uh, Kids are on their phones anyway, why not? And then started building a whole content and publishing business around that. Uh, And so they've, that that's a interesting path that was unique and, you know, creative. But the, the, key there is like students, if you tap into students paying for it and create the incentive for universities or, or institutions to back you and agree that this is something students should pay for, you might actually have a pretty interesting go-to-market there. Okay. to to dive back in, maybe
2: on a personal level, Vic, what brought you into ad tech starting with your site
0: building days? what, what got you in? I think there's probably something that's not unique to me and some things that maybe are, what's not unique to me, I think is like when you're a young person and you're excited to solve some problems and maybe there's some entrepreneurial streak in you, what tends to be largely ed tech related. And so this is a pretty common pattern where you'll see kids just out of college or kids in college starting ed tech apps and solutions because it's the problems they deal with every day. For me. I've always enjoyed teaching and specifically, like, uh, I get a lot of gratification from helping people. And the moment where I'm working with someone one-on-one and I can reach them in a way that helps them see a concept and the light bulb goes off, that was like always for me, one of the most rewarding things. And so when I thought about what I wanted to do after university, I, I I taught throughout university, I was a TA tutor, et cetera. So I always enjoyed that. And after university, I was in management consulting and started to think about what's next. And this was early days of the MOOCs, right? So I actually applied to Coursera when they were like 45 people. And I was thinking about what's next at management consulting, just because I was like fascinated. This is ridiculous. This is a crazy story. And I'd love to be a part of it. Um, and I think I was just obviously very inexperienced and they wanted like super uh, experienced, like BD people and those kinds of things. So didn't work out, but that got me thinking about ed tech generally, like, oh, this is, there is a revolution that's going to happen. And then specifically the idea of personalizing learning, again, going back to that, I really like that light bulb moment. And for me, it was always like, if I know what this person's like, what their personality is like, what they, how they think and what they're, what they're strong at and what they're weak at, I can get to that light bulb moment. And so how do we bottle that up and make it scalable? And that's also not a new thing. Lots of people have thought about this. Uh, software seems like an obvious answer to solve that kind of problem. And that's what got me down the path of site. Like, okay, I think we can build something here. It's probably a problem I'm really excited to solve. And then I got deep in EdTech and basically I've been there ever since. So you work in business development.
1: Like, how is a business development role in an EdTech company different from maybe a traditional business development role at a, at a regular tech company?
0: Great question. The, the core skills are probably not that different. The main difference might be the expectations on domain knowledge and credibility. Uh, so specifically, if you're a marketer or a salesperson, you need to know, you need to be credible, you can't use wrong terminology. You can't, it, because it's really important for teachers and educators to trust you, that you're actually trying to solve the problem, what their, uh, experience is like and that you're not trying to sell uh, software for the sake of just selling the software. Uh, You're actually there to solve their problem uh, because they take their jobs of taking care of kids and ensuring they're learning very seriously. And so in an enterprise world, this goes back to some of our other conversation around margins and things like that. You might not actually, you could be a great salesperson and you might not know that much about something like integrations or what is the software stack and implementation. You bring in people, hey, we've got a solutions engineer team I'm bringing in my solutions engineer next time. They'll come with a demo that's tailored for your stack. And we could talk about implementation timelines and things like that. But the salesperson themselves may not be an expert at any of that. In an ed tech environment, in your first conversation with a district leader or a school leader, uh, if you position it incorrectly and you, know, you don't have the luxury of a solutions engineer in a lot of cases, especially as you're scaling. So you, you better know what is the workflow or teacher and how you're going to demo a product in a way that a teacher or a school leader or a district leader might actually use. If you're a marketer, the copy you use, the specific examples you use on your websites, on your uh, social media, etc., all of that needs to suit the audience, which I don't think is uh, unique, but there's an extra layer of expectation there. Yeah, and Vic, is it fair to say that in
2: that tech, Especially in K 12, there's simultaneously an excitement about what technology can do, but also a distrust about the amount of money and the type of personalities that's moving to the space as well. Where, <laughs> not to call anyone out, but we, we had claims of, for example, a robot tutor in the sky back in the late yep. 2000s that didn't materialize. Um, it's just, yeah, I, I definitely have felt that as well from teachers and from district leaders that have seen all kinds of claims being made by technologists with great intentions and wild dreams yeah, that then don't materialize and then leave just a lot of classrooms in the lurch as well.
0: Yeah, totally fair. And there's definitely some scar tissue on many levels. And there's also just a, it's a very different experience. If you're a teacher in a classroom, similar to what we talked about with district leaders, your day to day is about how do I keep 20 to 30 kids engaged, how do I keep them happy? How do I keep them healthy for seven, eight hours in the day? And how do I keep them learning? Each child is different. Each child has different needs. You've got kids that might come in with parents who are either super busy. You've got kids who might be from broken homes. You've got kids that are dealing with realities of living in, you know, disadvantaged neighborhoods with crime and things like that, uh, every day. And you have to deal with all of those problems and all of that baggage effectively while trying to teach all 20 and 30 kids at the same time. And so that is a very unique experience. And it's really hard to empathize if you haven't done some of that yourself or experienced it yourself. And so when a startup or a salesperson from any kind of tech company comes in and hasn't experienced it, you tend to, it's, it's not even just the same language or how you position things. You say things that the teacher might think is just unrealistic. Oh yeah. Why don't I just go do this? Yeah. It's as simple. Like why haven't I personalized learning already? Right. Why haven't I looked at my reports and already known what every kid needs? Well, that's because six out of my seven hours are spent dealing with a whole bunch of other things that may be more important in the moment or more urgent for the health of these kids. You abstract that to the school district layer. And it's the same thing, right? We talked about this a little bit earlier with things like drugs and so on in schools. There's a whole bunch of other problems that they deal with. Uh, it's not as easy as like. Why don't I just hire someone to do these integrations and look at my data and make better decisions on educational outcomes? Well, there's so many other things that get in the way of that. And there's so much more complexity and nuance. Uh, and so that that that's one of the reasons for distrust is because a lot of salespeople and a lot of people marketing, a lot of people selling or trying to get technology into the space don't actually know what it's like and don't understand the depth or complexity of the challenges. And then the second thing, the scar tissue is related to our conversation on the different waves, right? The number of times companies have promised it's free, it'll always be free. And then the business model doesn't work and either have to end up starting and charging for something, or they go out of business, including EduCite and any others like it, uh, it takes a toll, right? After, especially if you've been in education for 20 years. So if you're a principal today who's been through all of these waves and you get another edtech startup telling you, it's always going to be free for you. It's, Your radar is like, yeah, I've seen Edmodo, I've seen every single one of these companies come through, I've seen my teachers use it, and then five years later, they don't exist. So how do we get around that? So I think that's that's what gives rise to a lot of the distrust. Yeah, and just a couple of things to add on top of that,
2: right? I think selling into enterprises, there is almost this like mutual understanding in which you're an enterprise selling into enterprise. And enterprises, at the end of the day, try to make money off of customers. And they know exactly how it goes. Be like, oh yeah, you're gonna go through some pivots. You're gonna have some instability. You may or may not be around in one or two years. And if we're early stage, we're exactly in the same boat, we get it. So <laughs> we understand that signing on the dotted line right now comes with its own set of risks. And, and that's a journey we're on. That's a journey you're on. It totally makes sense, but that's fundamentally different from the model of schools. The end outcome, they're is not profits. They're institutions that were built for stability not for massive scale and growth and pivots. And so just like the languages just don't quite connect, right? Where, um, they're looking for a kind of certainty and continuity that they themselves are trying to create for kids that startups are really find themselves pressed to deliver, right? Despite the best intentions. So that's one. And also just something else you are saying is how addressing the realities of educators, um, Schools have many, many more jobs outside of just delivering learning for kids. And th- those jobs that, you know, vary from safety to nutrition, all kinds of different things, right? So essentially even the most comprehensive ed tech solution will be a point solution for a school in terms of addressing an academic need or a learning need. And that'll just be one small thing next to the overall set of stuff that a teacher thinks about an administrator thinks about. So, so that's something that folks often, I think really forget is, oh yeah, you go to school to learn. Yes. For loads of people, that's exactly right. But then for loads of people to get parents, kids get way more out of school than just learning and uh, they solve many more problems.
0: Yeah. it's super interesting. There's some nuances that that are there that come to mind. It's funny as a salesperson, when you have vendors sell to you, you're always thinking about, yeah, I know what you're doing, right? But I know how this is going to help my people. I know how it's not going to help. I know where you're over-promising. I know where it's going to under-deliver, but that's okay. I'm willing to take all of that and sign it out of line. When you're in ed tech or you're a teacher or a principal or a school district leader, you don't know what they're doing and you don't know all the risks and they don't know what it's like to be a kid in the classroom. So it's it's completely different. And so it's just such a weird stack of users that are completely different from enterprise to enterprise sales and purchasing, et cetera. So that was a really great point.
1: So just to recap, we've kind of talked about the the different waves of the education space from
0: 2000 to now. It'd be nice to recap what those three waves are. Sure. Yeah. I think this is probably broadly um, aligned, but kind of how I view the waves. First wave being call it like pre 2012, uh, maybe 2013, where Basically, it was uh, a lot of a transition from on-device technology, not connected, not, inter- not internet or mobile based, to more user-friendly, social, web-based products and solutions, and uh, a little bit mobile, right? So Edmodo in the early days, Class Dojo, Remind, that we're kind of born in that era. And so when those companies started picking up steam, there was a lot of hype. There was a lot of funding that went in pretty quickly in uh, short order. And there was a ed tech boom, right? And then I think a lot of those companies, like we talked about, struggled to figure out the monetization, how to turn that consumerization trend into something that school districts would pay for or something somebody could pay for. And what the business model here would be to help really scale and build a massive business. The second wave was probably, in my view, kind of like at the tail end of that, into the late 2010s, where it was uh, a lot slower. So investors being a little skeptical and not seeing returns, EdTech was, it was all hail EdTech, EdTech is dead. So a lot of companies, including EduSight, like trying to figure out those business models and a lot of companies that were born and scaled in that time uh, have done reasonably well, but they've generally been like moderate successes and still building um, with potential to keep scaling, but no real like massive breakout hits with some exceptions. So companies like Canvas, Schoology, et cetera that tended to be in those LMS type spaces. And this is uh, largely K-12 is what I'm talking about. And the other trend that I observed was there were also companies like big success in higher ed and corporate. So that was an interesting thing. So I mentioned Top Hat earlier, that was around the same period, did reasonably well or doing reasonably well. And a lot of learning management systems also made a ton of money in higher ed and corporate, which helped them grow. I think there's a couple of key things that happened there in that wave. So Google came along and invested a lot more in education. Google for education, a lot of a lot of free stuff. Google Classroom disrupted a lot of this learning management system momentum, and probably extended the period of like edtech is not going to boom. And Google has become kind of the de facto learning management system in a lot of school systems in the U.S. especially. And then the second thing is, there were companies that still raised a lot of money on a lot and maybe struggled. And Jim, if you're <laughs> Jim would be first-hand witness to this with AltSchool being a company that raised a ton of money in that second wave, right, where largely edtech tech was slow. But here was this incredible new approach of like, hey, we're going to, because of all the noise in going into a public school system, we're going to figure it out in more of a closed setting and then license and open it up aggressively. So I think there were examples like that, Facebook and Zuckerberg investing in Summit Public Schools and building stuff with them. That was also interesting It's still going, which is great. So those are some of those trends in what I think of as the second wave. And then third wave being leading up to pandemic and into now where there's a lot more consumerization, B2C focus, going into the home and finding new interesting business models that don't go into classrooms necessarily, but still try to drive the same kind of learning outcomes. And we spent some time talking about Prodigy and OutSchool and others like that. So that's also, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Nice. So wave one was with this new digital age,
1: how does technology fit into broad education landscape? Let's go for scale, but then struggled with monetization. Wave two is, I guess, kind of like companies or organizations with a lot of resources, trying to use their resources to lean into the education system a little bit more. And then this third wave is around. With families being more aware around what their kids are learning about, where, where are their opportunities to bring education into the home space is kind of what I'm gathering.
0: Yeah. I think there's like in wave two, there was sort of like coming to terms with the reality that the type of scale and monetization people are expecting, especially K-12 may not be realistic. And so let's build more mid-sized companies that are still doing good and doing great business, but don't expect home run outcomes in K-12. And then I think wave three is like with mobile fully taking hold and like a whole new set of practices and apps. And then again, with COVID, like a whole different dynamic and how we interact with tech and use tech and what the home looks like. Uh, I think that's opening up some new, interesting opportunity that could lead to home run tech companies. Super
1: cool. And I I I'd love to start to segue into on deck, but maybe to uh, another recap is around the K twelve thesis that you had around starting sites and then working at Prodigy, and then kind of what made you spin a little bit out of K twelve into more of the corporate and higher learning space.
0: Yeah, one of the learnings from Edusite was that the buyer is. Has a very different set of problems and things they care about than the users, the core users. And it's really hard to bridge that gap for all the reasons we've talked about with dynamics around school district leaders and things like that. What was the core part of the thesis there was there's probably two areas where we could build a scalable business um, selling to those school district leaders. One would be content, because that actually is a traditional line item in the budget. Uh, 20 years ago, paying for textbooks, paying for any kind of real core educational content uh, and supplemental content. That's a pretty well understood thing. And so if you're using technology to replace the content experience, instead of a textbook, you're building math curriculum or science curriculum or uh, language curriculum. There is a clear need and everyone understands transition from paper to physical to digital. There are businesses that are doing pretty well in purely content. And some of the biggest K-12 companies, uh, Imagine Learning, Curriculum Associates, Renaissance Learning, are basically curriculum businesses across all grade levels, all all subject levels, aggregated into massive companies. So that's cool to see. And I think it makes a ton of sense. And tying that back to EduSite, where EduSite tried to get in at the data layer to personalize learning across, you know, subject agnostic. In content, you can kind of go vertical. So we will build a solution for math, like Prodigy. And within that, we will personalize. So Prodigy has algorithms that personalize the content every student saw based on their own mastery of certain concepts what questions they did well in and what questions they struggled with and their level of engagement and so we were able to do that on the back end in a very focused context and so if you go content and you go vertical you can also achieve that personalization goal but it's again sort of in that slice versus across the whole persona or capabilities of a student and so that's what attracted me to Prodigy was when we couldn't get to that goal with Eduside, Uh, and Prodigy was doing really well and growing. It was like, hey, they're coming at the same problem in a different way and seeing good results and seeing great growth. So that was exciting to me and part of why I joined Prodigy. And then the other area where I think you are building and people are building great businesses focused on school district leaders is back office tools. So things that solve administrator problems, which school district leaders deal with all the time. And. There you have a direct, your user is your buyer and you don't have to cross that chasm as much. But again, there's, it's probably limited in how much spend they uh, do there and what their budgets are there. But there's enough problems that you could solve and build some businesses there. And then the trade-off is you're not directly uh, driving student learning outcomes, which is a big motivator for a lot of ed tech entrepreneurs. So there is some trade-off there. to
2: put a final bow on K-12, if you were to pick a, either a product, a problem, a model or something to build a company off of in K-12 right now?
0: What would be the most compelling one for you in this time? That's a great question. Um, given all the trends and the ways we're talking about, and Keely I was at Prodigy, I'm biased. <laughs> I think Prodigy has figured out a pretty unique model and started with math. They're also now layering in tutoring. And so the idea being. We're helping kids in math with our content. And now we can layer in additional support, uh, where parents can pay more for an individual tutor to teach their kids. And there's a lot of places that can scale. And over time, you can see that approach being applied to different subjects, different grade levels, uh, and with a very similar business model of parents paying. So I think that's pretty novel and I can see that scaling pretty well. And in, you know, our wave three type conversations, similar models where It's not necessarily trying to solve the problem in that rigid classroom environment, but there's other places where you can still help kids learn, improve and in a personalized way, and there's opportunities for all that now, which is exciting. Interesting. So the Jigsaw you assemble is
2: D to C, sell to parents first, pick a subject vertical, uh, make a killer product that has product driven growth and can scale. And then once you have some amount of scale with parents and success and efficacy and trust, layer on top, added in um, more like service-driven products after that, like tutoring, um, and then essentially grow LTV based on added products. And then also, of course, then there's a horizontal growth across. Yeah, and you well. could
0: at that point conceivably go B two B as well because depending on your size and scale of company, you can invest in that. You can start to solve some of those problems and. You probably have a brand and now it's just, how do you translate that brand to a school audience? A lot of teachers are obviously parents. A lot of school district leaders are parents. So if they have trust that they're they're building in your brand, then it's now about, Hey, now we've tailored this for the school experience and investing in efficacy to prove that out. So it's not easy, but there is a path there.
1: Yeah. Especially if there's community buy-in too. District leaders are very receptive to how the community is responding to various educational tools that are, that their kids are valuing. That's an interesting too.
2: So listeners, if you have a business like that, that you're running Vic's playbook on a, he might give you some C funding. And if you scale it out and up, he can connect you with some folks at Prodigy. That, uh, that might, uh, help you in your next period the growth and uh, fold you into the okay. Prodigy family. So please do let Vic know. No, that is cool though. As an aside, I think, I think that's right. I think that, um. Yeah. I, I think it's like, when you just try to think about what early stage company, um, the profile of like a small startup and what they can do, it's not necessarily the advantages aren't to build up a like sales and marketing function that scales linearly with, um, the number of salespeople you yep. can hire. Right. That always like, wasn't a great model for startups yeah. anyways. Yeah. Um, is very, you, you, if you take the assumption that you need to start with something product led and lower customer acquisition costs, you almost have to back into the D to C model and then you start there. And then of course you can open up all kinds of different
0: yeah. things for that. Another thought here, I know we should be moving on, but another thought here that comes to mind is there's also this macro trend of how we think about learning is changing, right? For decades, we've talked about like in the classroom stage on the stage, lecturing your class or kids, is it effective? Yep. Uh, But what else do you do? And now with mobile apps, like everyone knows how to use Google. You learn things, you're not learning things to remember them, to pass a test. You're learning things in the moment to solve a specific task or problem. And you might retain some of it, which is great. You'll build on top of that, or you might not. Uh, and that's how most people are learning things today. And that's just such an intuitive, natural experience. And so that means when you build a product to improve people's learning, I'm thinking of it as in the classroom, how do I improve that learning in the moment so they can get better on that quiz? They're just thinking of it as like, what else can I do to help people absorb more knowledge and get better at solving a specific task for part of time? And so out school, which 20 years ago might've seemed ridiculous. Like, why do I have this marketplace of classes on random skills for kids? I'm just going to trust the kid in the class or a teacher in the classroom to teach them and they'll know and learn what they need to know. But today, the reality is kids have devices. Kids are learning things and going exploring all kinds of things. If you're a parent, let me direct them to some things that are more uh, valuable, fun, engaging. And so, cool, parents' mindsets on how kids learn is shifting. uh, People building these technologies' mindsets on how kids learn is shifting, or what learning is, is shifting. Um, So I think that opens up this whole world of like, you don't have to restrict yourself to curriculum-based, specific products and subjects to feel like you're having an impact. And that's important because if you're an entrepreneur in ed tech starting to, I want to change the world and help people learn and get better, your natural entry point is no longer, like your default is no longer a classroom product, which is pretty interesting and cool.
1: Right. There's like less pressure to learning now. You used to learn to do well in a quiz or a test, but now you're learning, you're learning for fun, which is, that's, that's an exciting place to be in. Yeah.
2: So, maybe on that note of a lot more learning not happening in classrooms, whether it's k twelve or higher ed or advanced degrees let's let's get into on deck because I think that's a perfect description of what's happening there for older crowds as well so there uh why don't you give us a short intro of what on deck is for those who are up
0: yeah at its at its simplest expression, on deck is a network of communities to help ambitious people around the world grow, and so that's pretty broad, and that's kind of intentional because. The core ideas of OnDeck, there there are a few different core ideas behind why we're building OnDeck and what it is. One is, uh, let's start with the learning idea, right? What people learn, how they learn is changing. We no longer need to be married to this idea of you stop learning formally at the age of 22, or you go to grad school. And then outside of that, what you actually learn, which actually is a lot more, is not considered learning. That's no longer true. We know that there's a lot of ongoing learning you need to do. Careers are a lot shorter, job tenures are a lot shorter, people keep evolving what they want to do and so we want to support that and how people advance their careers and grow in their lives doesn't have to be by committing to degrees or advanced committed learning like that formal learning like that so that's one core idea second core idea is how do we bottle what made silicon valley great and make that accessible globally so a lot of what made silicon valley great is geographic clustering right and this has been studied for decades now lots of different cities trying cluster strategies to combine uh, intense concentration of talent, abundance of capital, and bring them all together in a way where you engineer serendipity connections and make those collisions happen. So you birth new ideas, technology, and fund them and scale them. That's what Silicon Valley uh, was and has been doing uh, exceptionally well for 50 plus years. And so what the pandemic showed is there's no reason that has to be geographically constrained and so how do we bring together the same intense concentration of talent and ambition capital and create those serendipitous connections in order to start you know building things and changing the world and so that's the second core idea of on deck and the third idea is sort of blends both of those it, there's a role stanford played in silicon valley historically kind of making all of this legible right so stanford attracted the talent and then helped them grow. And then people stayed in the community around Stanford and Stanford also helped bring capital. And so it, it, almost created this, um, way for, the connections to happen, right? So how do we convene the same thing and how do we become, we've on and off used the analogy, we're building the Stanford of the internet. We're building the grad school campus in the cloud where there's community and curriculum and learning but it's not a, a geographic affiliation. So that's what we're trying to do with deck. And then just to make that a bit real, there are each community is essentially a, an annual fellowship. And today I would say we have two categories of communities. There is one that's more startup focused. So people that are looking to start or build something or help scale their companies, uh, a lot of founder personas and archetypes, but also sectors. So we have climate tech fellowship. We have longevity, biotech, ed tech, health tech, so on and so forth. So This is a certain area and there's different personas. There's people that are just curious and want to learn. There are people that are actually building something and there are academic scientists who are experts in those areas in these fellowships and communities. And so how do you bring them all together and help them grow and learn together? The second broad set of communities is what we're calling our careers communities. And so these are for the persona tends to be more employees and leaders within high growth companies, and it's not so much about starting something, but it's about getting better at your craft and accelerating your career. And so we've got five fellowships today, product management, customer success, design, uh, community builders and chief of staff. Uh, and we're going to keep expanding with four fellowships that kind of touch the stack of what it takes to build tech business, uh, go to market, operations, product engineering. And so any level of seniority, there'll be different tracks for people, uh, to sort of find their people and learn from each other with a peer group. That's going through the same kinds of challenges as you. And so Vic, if I'm a fellow
2: in one of these fellowships, going back to the analogy of kind of Stanford, how is my experience similar to, let's just say, attending Stanford during like a remote yep. quarter and how might it be different?
0: Yeah. Great question. There's a lot of ways it's different in that we're not as focused on like a here's year long prescribed rigid curriculum. That's one key difference, but there are a lot of ways it's similar. So one is if I actually just abstract away. On deck is about three things or three core concepts, right? One is it's about that community. So it's about, like like I just mentioned, peers who are around the same stage as you and experiencing the same challenge differently. You can read all the books you want on how to build go-to-market or how to build customer success for low touch or high touch models, but the devil is in the details and in hearing people's experiences, mistakes they've made, you pick up and connect a lot more different dots that you can then execute differently on your own implementation of the same solution. And so that community approach is really core to OnDeck. The second thing, and this is where it's similar, is there's curricula. And so there are speaker sessions from world-class people. So uh, an example is uh, Nick Meta, who's the CEO of Gainsight, is one of our speakers for customer success, uh, leading sessions and helping us build content. There are one-on-one curated connections. So, hey, we, you two should meet because you are both in a Series B company in a similar space, leading similar... Are facing similar problems, right? And so we we create those connections, and then we also have mastermind groups, so smaller groups, but not one on one. And then there are uh, what we're calling modules. So these are sort of mini courses, so two week, four to six hours of content on a specific topic, mix of asynchronous and live to kind of just go deep on one thing. And then around that, we may build mastermind groups and things like that. And so these are opt in. Oh, there's some modules on these specific things. Great, I'm going to engage and go do that. So there are there are ways of building curriculum and content that are unique, world-class, but also flexible. And that's kind of what we do. And then the third thing is the ROI. So again, unlike Stanford or any of the more formal ways of learning, you don't have to commit a, a year of your life and where you're spending 40, 50 hours a week trying to go deep on something. It's more about anywhere between one to five hours a week. Depends on what you're looking to get out of it and People go through peaks and valleys, right? There may be periods of time where you have a busy period at work. And so you're not able to spend five hours that week and maybe you don't do anything with the Hyundai that week. So we build in that flexibility and it costs relatively affordable compared to most other learning options between two and $5,000, depending on the fellowship for a year and you get the return. And so uh, high ROI um, is important part of how we operate too. Really I think um, just. Taking the community thread
2: a bit, because that's, I feel like that's pretty core to the model that's here. In fact, I know that's how you guys started is you guys were community rather than necessarily function or curriculum or knowledge first. Um, and a lot of how Honda got started was actually starting like dinner clubs around the world. Right. Um, there's a piece of community here that I'm experiencing in my day-to-day professional learning, which is around, let's just take the example of AB testing. Right. So a non-community driven way of learning AB testing is I can take, um, I don't know, a, a YouTube video course. I can even buy a premium course with like pretty carefully laid out content. Right. And it will give me the methodology around how to design like random control trials, it might give me, you know, some best practices in terms of figuring out reporting, but in terms of a nitty gritty thing, that's really in the details so you're saying like what vendor right now? it's best to pick for A, B testing, right? Like, do I go with Optimizely as a series A company? Do I go with like A, B, Tasty? Do I go VWO? It's like, that is a classic community question, right? Because it's like, it's current, it's deeply contextualized, um, and it's very detailed depending on your leads. And so that's immediate use case I can think of for community is like, oh, wow, I wish I had a group in which I could ping and be like, hey, (laughs) what are people doing for AV testing these days? And can we just get a mastermind like 30 minutes behind that in terms of your practices, what kind of tools you use? But I feel like that's, that's a narrow, maybe speed for how you guys think about community. So tell me more, what does community mean to you? on deck and how does it grow from there from like, Hey, let, let me just paint a group and get, get an answer on something. It's
0: much more than that from how you guys yeah. think about it. The origin story is instructive and I think it informs a lot of how we think about, uh, community and just generally what on deck is. Like you said, it started as a series of dinners, uh, Eric Jordanberg uh, bringing people together in 2016, 17, 18, et cetera. And it was mostly about helping founders. So let's bring founders together, at different stages, spark connections and help them grow together. And, uh, there's a couple of key sort of, uh, principles that I think have emerged. So one is uh, a spirit of service. So it's not just about being there to get the answer you want. It's about communal. Let's help each other. We're in this together and I'm here to serve you. And so in order to live up to that, you need a, the second thing, which is high trust within that group. You can't have a spirit of service if you don't trust someone's going to return that. If you don't trust, your time is going to be, come back to you in some way down the line and you feel good about that. And, or if it's going to be abused, I'm going to give you advice or I'm going to give you insight that you're then going to take and either monetize or uh, leak or any kinds of ways of abuse. So there has to be the spirit of service and trust uh, go hand in hand. And so that's really ingrained in how we uh, try to operate and build these communities. And what happened in 2020 was it started with those dinners. Then they turned that into fellowship for founders and it was all, largely anyway, in-person and some of it might be in-person events in New York or San Francisco and around local clusters, but it was largely in-person and then COVID hit and overnight they were in the middle of a founder fellowship. They had to turn all of that virtual and so had to figure out how do we create a virtual experience where you replicate some of these interactions and principles preserve what made the community effective, but also make it scalable. And so hack together a whole bunch of like no code solutions and sort of rigorous playbook, how you operationalize all of this, what are the touch points, what are the specific cadence and series of events you uh, run a group through in order to generate the spirit of service and trust, and how does all of that fit together? And so uh, like, that's something we tinker with and keep evolving, but uh, that was sort of the insight, Hey, we can do this virtually, we can do this globally. And we operationalized this to some extent, and that enabled them to, to quickly spin up more founder fellowships, but also quickly go into new programs, right? Uh, cause you can, now you have a playbook. And so I think that's core to it is like being able to get those two things. And then what that opens up is, people being vulnerable, people reaching out with real deep challenges and questions, not necessarily something you can find a stack overflow, um. Uh, or yeah, <laughs> any version of that, I, it really requires in a lot of cases, like, Hey, I need someone to get on a 15 minute conversation with me. I uh, just help walk me through this. And then another piece there is you also have more than one person. So you're not just getting one opinion. You might get five different opinions on something like the question you post, Jim, of like, which A-B testing tool to use. And then that helps you synthesize and make a decision better. And, and
1: what are some of the playbooks that you guys employ to get those two key elements of community, the, the, the trust and also this nature of you first, me second mentality. Like what were some of those playbooks you, you employed?
0: Yeah. I, I think a lot of it is just uh specific iteration and execution on like, uh, again, how we bring people into the community, how we onboard them, what, again, a specific sequence of events, right? So we have a kick kickoff. For every cohort and community that is frequently rated as one of the best experiences people have, not just with within deck, but just in a lot of cases, like period, which is really cool because you've got these groups of like 40, 50, 100 people really engaged and buying into this kickoff experience and excited about it. Uh, and so I think it's just, it's those sorts of things. Like how do we create this moment of time feeling of like buy and engagement and like, I, I, I get it, right? How do you get to that aha moment of what the community can do and why it's powerful quickly. And so, yeah, that's generally what a lot of the thing bring in an iteration. So, uh, yeah. That's the magic sauce here.
1: I, I mainly ask because there, I feel like a lot of virtual communities popped up in COVID and. For me at least, I got very excited in the beginning. And there kind of was this like after a month or two, you're kind of like, eh, like winds down a little bit. And that's that's really impressive to like to get that consistency and that engagement within the community for on deck.
0: Yeah. And the the reality is on deck has only been operating at this level of scale for maybe six months, right? Most of twenty twenty was like figuring out the playbook and trying to add more fellowships or sorry, more cohorts. And twenty twenty one is really where we've gone from like two or three programs to like 18, right? So we're still in the midst of like, what does a year, two years in look like? And there may be all kinds of things that happen, including like some of those stagnation challenges. I, I think what makes me really excited about OnDeck is the culture and the company is very entrepreneurial and very iteration focused and biased to action. So anytime there's these challenges, like people are just, let's dive in and test something and keep trying new things and get better at it. And, and I think related to that is also just that it's the collection of talent that OnDeck has been able to bring together very quickly, which is pretty impressive. So we'll see how it all you know, plays out, but it's pretty uh, exciting. And Vic, can you tell us about, um, whatever you can share on the scale and kind of impact,
2: um, that OnDeck is having right now? And I think there's two dimensions there. One is scale as in, you know, number number of users, number of folks in the fellowship, but also to Theo's point, um, both of us have experiences in, uh, online communities in which they promise a lot, but the it product is really a slack group where there's crickets, right? So tell us about how you guys think about the vibrancy of a community about what are some of the, uh, results you've been able to deliver there.
0: Yeah. Uh, There's probably, so I'll start with kind of the scale. So on deck is 18 programs today, and we're probably going to be adding a handful more before the end of the year. Each program, depending on the needs of that community, right? So you might have a cohort size that's 50 people, or you might have a cohort size that's 150. So that's up to the program director to kind of decide what they're curating for that community. And the typical way it works is you have a four to eight week onboarding with a smaller group. And you get to know that group. You build these connections, including all the kickoff and all those kinds of things. And then you're part of the broader community. That's the sort of annual evergreen membership. And so each, like I said, that's kind of the scale. Each of those programs can be anywhere between 40 to 80 people. And the goal is for each program to onboard between three and five cohorts a year. And so at a given year, you might go from, if you start a program January 1st and you bring in three cohorts of 80 people, you might have 250 people by the end of the year. Right. And so, and, and I mentioned it's that, that's roughly the scale. And so today, I think we're over 6,000 fellows across all programs, given 18 programs that might sound low, but that's because, like I said, many of the programs have only, are yeah. only like one or two cohorts in. So that number will right. scale exponentially. Right. And it depends on how you compare it because if you compare it to,
2: I don't know, a university, right. that's the, well, that's, that's a small university's graduating graduated class, I guess, but if you compare it to boot camp, right. Um. Bootcamps have historically always, I think, found challenges in going beyond that few yep. hundred number because a lot of their model is baked around um, that quality that only comes with a higher touch kind of a service, which I think a few hundred to a thousand is kind of where, um, a lot of them are experiencing trouble or scale and beyond. So 6,000 a year right now
0: is yeah. Yeah. Right. Wow. Not bad for like just being in a virtual game for less than a year. Huh? Yeah, that's it's incredible. Uh, pretty crazy, and it's also like on your point about how do you ensure that it's not just a Slack group that are, that's crickets. Uh, one of the things that excited me about deck was the amount of engagement on Slack specifically. Like it's just always a lot of engagement and conversation, and I think there's a few things that help. So a lot of what we talked about, right? So that intimate onboarding, smaller group sessions, plus the content that's always leading in creating room for discussion, um, the principles, the spirit of service and all those kinds of things. But then also we are really trying to focus on network quality and network utility and so they're abstract concepts and hard to measure and keep an eye on. But like our, and we don't have a, here's a clear metric, that's our North star. And so as we start scaling these, that's gonna be the main focus. Like how do you preserve the quality while still making it accessible for people around the world. What we don't want is to be exclusive. We only admit people with pedigree and those kinds of things. We don't want to become like an Ivy league type environment for, from that exclusivity standpoint, because there are people around the world that may just not have opportunity to do their next thing. We talk about, I think it was Alex Danko maybe wrote about it in one of his blogs around the golden rule of Silicon Valley. You never know who's going to be the next founder and the next great founder, right? And so. It's it's more about what are the signals we can trust that this person has the right capabilities and will contribute and be a you know phenomenal member in this network and community. That's part of our acceptance process. And then once they're in, we, we're looking to measure that network quality overall. And then on the network utility side, that's actually one of the reasons we've grown so fast is how do we create connections within a community and help people help each other and make that easy? And then how do we also, create connections across communities and networks. And so a lot of OnDeck's initial growth thesis is built around flywheels. So started with the founder fellowship. What else is a founder going to need on their journey to building a world-class company? They're going to need capital. Let's start an OnDeck angel fellowship, right? OnDeck investing and OnDeck VC. So different tiers and types of investors. What else are they going to need? Well, they're going to need talent. We started OnDeck first 50, which is to help find roles in early stage companies. And so now there's a these founders can tap into that. And what actually happens at OnDeck First 50 is we do talent demo days where companies pitch to these fellows. So it's the founders coming in to say, Hey, like I need people in these things. Let's talk. And so that that's part of the flywheel, right? And then the career stack eventually in the long run is also part of that flywheel where we're not, it's not about as liquid. The idea isn't to make people at companies keep moving into these founder led early stage companies, but over time. They're now part of this network that's vetted and trusted, and there's a uh, credibility there that's built.
1: So Vic, correct me if I'm wrong, but if we were to loosely translate this to like a university model, it's like as a student, you're leaning into like a major for a university that has very strong implications with all the other majors within that university that you could tap into. And, and I think another interesting thing is that while traditional universities lean into the content, the curriculum of their, their major programs, Seems like on deck is leaning into more of a community base. So it's more about getting a bunch of people who are interested in the same area. And then that will somehow foster other opportunities, whether it's other programs or other synergies with other quote unquote majors. Is that how you guys see it at on Deck, or where would you modify some of that?
0: Yeah, that's a really good analogy. I think the, and then there's layers to probably add around that, right? Which is how do you, things like universities have alumni. And right. we don't have alumni because by design, we are an annual membership. Some people might choose to not renew their subscription over time as we scale, which is natural. And what does that look like? Um, and so there's a whole bunch of things like that, but for the most part, our goal is to like most people who become part of the on network remaining part of the on network, right? Uh, either as part of one fellowship, but maybe there's your identity changes. Right, Maybe you are a founder, you build a company, and I'm going to use my own example, you build a company, doesn't work out, and now you're a senior leader in a scaling startup. And now the founder fellowship is not applicable to you, but sales, on-deck sales, on-deck business development is applicable to you as a community. And so uh, you can switch your affiliation as your identity changes, but you're still part of the on-deck network. And so I think that's unique because it's lifelong, and on-deck ideally is like kind of the first place you think of to help you and accelerate you versus uh, a university where it's like point in time. I need a degree in this specific thing, which university is best.
1: And there's something to be said about the complexity of different personas that you have, right? Like you have the founder's persona, but even though that's not who you are, you can still contribute that value to the on-deck, like those who are in the ed tech space or the founder's space. So because of the complexity, it almost, uh, springs up a bunch of other opportunities
0: there. That's right. And over time, the goal is like. We're still going to, we're going to create as many nodes for the network to, people within the network to create utility for each other. But there's going to be a whole bunch of things that we're not even thinking of that emerge and happen, right? And that's also pretty interesting. So from that, then we might have additional things we can build on top to add value.
1: And so the final thread that I might also pull is like, with a university model, there's this cohort connection between graduating class. So if I'm graduating class of 2015, yeah. I'm super tight with others who are in 2015, but I'm probably not going to be as tight with those in the graduating class of 2020. But with this network utility, you're constantly pushing people out of their cohort and linking with uh, the newer personas. And again, that just brings up a lot of opportunities there
0: too. Yeah, that's a really good observation. What we do is sort of like university course codes. So every On Deck fellowship has its own code. So On Deck founder is ODF on deck, a customer success is ODCS and you, we also talk about co So ODCS one and ODCS two and ODF 10 and 11 and 12. And so uh, part of what we do is like create a little icon in Slack. And so that becomes part of your identity. A lot of people put them in their Slack user ID where it's like a badge that says ODF 10, right? So immediately I know which uh, specific cohort they were and which community they're a part of and it's cool. And like you have uh, that, you you create a little bit of that identity, but at the same time, we can interact with people across those cohorts and communities, which is cool. So, so i a question for you on, um, going back into,
2: um, how do you keep a community high quality as you scale? One of the things you're mentioning is, of course you do that in selection and you select for people um, whether it's like decisions, whether it's past experience, whether it's projects they've done, there's a set of things that you guys can look at. Um, and we can get into how after you do that, but just on, on a broader basis, as you scale, essentially, when we look at boot camps, they have to relax their selection criteria because you're essentially reaching, you're reaching a broader audience that are of a more diverse characteristic. And so that makes selection harder and harder to use as a lever for community quality. Um, do you guys think about it that way, that eventually selection will fade as a lever and uh, like what you do in the in the community itself needs to drive community quality? Or I guess, how do you think about selection um, playing a role in your kind of core product quality
0: around community as you guys scale up? Yeah, there's a, uh, I think that's a, uh, complex long-term thing that we'll learn a lot about along the way, but there's again some sort of guiding principles. One is we're very big on sort of positive sum mindset, and it's always about how do we expand the pie, not how do we win within this limited pie, right? And so we view this as like this is a global market. As more and more people come online, advance their economies, advance opportunities, there are talented people, ambitious people everywhere in the world, solving all kinds of problems. And so the, over time, we, we don't think this is a limited, like only certain pockets have quality. How do we actually get better at identifying and predicting quality and aptitude and ambition, uh, and talent in a broad way, not in a narrow way, so that we're not limiting how and where we find people and bring them into our network, uh, I think. Again, there is probably a theoretical limit as you scale over time. And so it'll get harder and harder. Uh, so we'll have to get better and better at how we solve that problem. Uh, but our overall approach and mindset is like there, it's more about how do you cultivate that talent and identify that talent and help them find their access to on deck in the right node. Another, this is more sort of my take on it as well is the fabric of what makes up on deck might also change as we scale. Right. A lot of what we're talking about today probably applies more to developed economies, right? The founder ecosystem, the careers ecosystem, etc. A lot of emerging economies, most talent is not thinking about those things, is not in the tech ecosystem. And so what are different kinds of fellowships that you can build to serve people solving different problems who may be just as ambitious, maybe just as talented with different opportunities. And so like the offerings of the fabric of what the overall network looks like might change, but the core principles ideally remain the same and that might even add more, right? So those are some thoughts. And then I think the the key thing is like, we, w- we need to, we're still super early. So we're gonna get better at like how we measure network quality, how we evolve our processes beyond simple selection. In the long run, there, are, there is probably some level of mechanisms around community moderation. What happens as you scale and people are uh, doing things that are unacceptable? How do you moderate that on and so forth? So yeah, lots, lots of meaty questions there. I think we're early enough where we have some ideas, but maybe not great crystal clear, uh, answers yet. And maybe
2: here's a branch of that question that you might've already run into at this phase of scaling is that in a sense, there's a greater on that community. That is the on-deck fellowship, but you have all these micro vertical, specific communities built up around functions, around founders, around specific tasks you want to get done. And, um, just like kind of where you are in your journey. Um, and then based on that, there are certain share principles, but I'm sure there's certain amount of flexibility and personalization that happens within every micro community. What. What are some of that personalization that you built in already, or how you guys are thinking about giving that kind of flexibility? Because I imagine that's pretty key in the future as you, as you're describing, bringing new markets online. They essentially become additional micro communities that then share some principles we use to take out lives of their own as well.
0: Uh, the key I think is we have generalized playbooks that everybody has access to, but we give discretion to the program directors. And the program directors tend ah. to be experts in that specific field. And so if, we're bu- if you're building a functional community, like a marketing community, for example, the program director we would bring on would be someone who has, who's credible, who has deep network, who loves community building, and who cares about the craft. And so that's the persona. And we equip them with some generic playbooks, plus we've got functional support, so growth teams. Uh, Business development teams, candidate experience teams, admissions teams, et cetera. And then that person chooses how they build their community within those constraints and within those principles, right? So they could choose which archetype do I start with? If I've got nobody in this marketing community, do I start with like senior leaders? Do I start with like individual contributors, manager level? What kind of content do I build for them? Who in my network can build that content and curate it? All of those kinds of decisions are up to the program director and we give them that autonomy and discretion. And so they build our sort of own personality uh, and their own personalized approach within this framework to suit the needs of like what is organic and authentic to that community.
2: Oh, I think that's the point that maybe both Theo and I miss is that this, there's a platform play here, which is that you're essentially creating the shared resources in the middle to empower these specific verticals that are, are these program directors? Are they yeah. full-time employees? Are they? What? Okay. They're sort right. of like their so own GMs of
0: mini businesses, right? And so huh. they also choose who they hire, how so they hire, how they scale it up with their right. teams. So, yeah. That's a
2: fascinating model. It's like um, you're, you've internalized your life developer community, so to speak, that are building these (laughs) customizations specific to each vertical, they're your full-time employees. And on top, you're also building the platform underneath to help them. And I can imagine that in the future, this can spin off a number of different ways. So, I mean, Vic, I feel like you're, you're a pretty high level thinker. And so we've gone pretty deep into on deck, but, um, I want to tap into also your expertise in this space and let's just call the space roughly, um, adult uh online learning or lifelong learning, right? Um there's a number of models in this space right now. Some are community driven, some are not. And also there's been a lot of evolution in this space. Um similar to what we got in K12, there's been probably even more um growth in this space in terms of different models. So talk us through your observations here, both in terms of the changes through time as well as the snapshot of where this overall space is right now.
0: Yeah, I think the Ways broadly, it feels like there are maybe two categories emerging. And this is, I I could obviously be missing some stuff. The one being the evolution of MOOCs. And so more course-based time bound certification oriented offerings, right? So Coursera is a classic example. And as you guys covered in really good depth in that episode, there's lots of offshoots and flavors of that with um, Udemy and Udacity and others that are serving global markets, but the core thing is like, there's some specific curriculum with a time-bound approach and selling to different audiences to kind of build that. I think there's now obviously the rise of more informal approaches. So cohort-based courses have become a uh, popular term and there's been some great companies, so Reforge and Maven and others that are in this vintage of companies that are blending community and curriculum in different ways and different approaches. And to some degree, the modes of learning are different and the subjects you learn are different. And so where Reforge started with product and growth, right? Um, and that was kind of their core focus tech, high growth tech employees. It's not a traditional, it's not something you'd find a, a lot of university type courses for. You might find some, uh, handful of individual courses or certificates, but Reforge's is play and advantages, we're giving you people that have been there, done that. Content experts delivering and creating this content. So you're learning from the best on these topics that aren't accessible anywhere else. Like you can, to your point earlier, Jim, you can Google some of this and you can get some playbooks and resources and blogs, but it's different from being in a experience where the person who's done that and written that playbook can tell you the nuances and give you that uh, content. So. There's that flavor of it. But again, it's, it's a combination of like unique, new approaches, new models of learning, uh, and new areas of learning. And then there's companies like Maven where it's cohort based and a lot of the, uh, it's, it's around almost a creator oriented approach, right? So, uh, let's empower the experts to build the course themselves in any way they want to do it and whatever course they want. So I might be a, you know, niche blogger on like, uh. I don't know, sports marketing, and I'd be able to sell that course purely as interest to someone who's a sports fan and like, Hey, I want to learn more about the business of basketball. Uh, and this guy writes some cool blogs. I'm going to take that course on Maven. Cause I'm just, I've got some, I'm, I'm curious and I'd enjoy it. And so that's also learning. It's a different model of learning. It's a new area of learning and the magic again, is in that covert approach, uh, and content. And so I think if you put reforged Maven and on deck on a spectrum, it's similar themes of learning doesn't have to be formal, rigorous, et cetera. There's a community aspect to it, an element to it. And there's a content that is still delivered by experts in world-class caliber, but it's kind of the blend of how we each bring it to market. And that changes the value proposition, right? There's easily a world where someone starts in, uh, and this is just an example, takes a course on Maven on like, what is product management from someone that's an expert? Falls in love, switches careers and joins an on-deck product management fellowship that becomes part of their identity. They're doing that every year, uh, gets a job and then, Hey, I want to level up faster with a reforged course and experience all of those things. That's still helpful to them. And so I think the value proposition, uh, and positioning is different in each of those, but the general themes that set it apart from Coursera and all of those is how it's delivered. And yeah, that combination.
2: Yeah. And, and some parallels I'm also seeing as. Those- as you laid out in those two categories, one is content and course driven. So the massive online open courses model. The other being cohort based is also, um, field. This so is something that we covered in terms of your, your, um, your, your model in terms of who creates the content and who is actually serving the customer. Right. So on the move side, um, there is a pure first party model, which was Udacity. They created all of their content. They still do that. In the middle was Coursera. They had more of a partnership model. They get hands-on, but in the end they partner with universities. And then there's also Udemy all the way on the other side, right? Just bring that over to the cohort based model in which on the one side, the pure first party play might be reforged right now, right? In which they, they employ experts, but these folks are not like creators and not kind of a marketplace, right? They're creating that content in the middle, it sounds like maybe onback in which you guys are building the platform, but you guys still have a lot of control and a lot of atten- attention to quality right now. And then all the way to the other side is Maven in which they're creating a more and more decentralized platform. Um, and they're trying to power their creators. It's just fascinating seeing that parallel and seeing how there's, um, there's, as you are saying, like very different value props depending on how you land these and, um, And they actually are not entirely mutually exclusive either. Just like in the other side, you can take a bunch of different courses from different providers on this side as well. You can belong to multiple communities at different points in time. And it totally makes sense to me. So Vic, we were just covering, um, the different models, the different tracks, as well as like the content creation model, which then determines, um, different types of experiences you could build both on the course driven side and a cohort driven side, maybe now's a good time to actually, uh, Bring this to your specific role and on deck where you just started as VP of business development, um, a month ago. So tell us about this role. And then I think as we unpack this role it's probably going to get back into for the customers and the buyers you're thinking about, how are they looking at this space in terms of the products and, um, the outcomes they can purchase for, uh, for their employees. So
0: yeah. so. My role is effectively figuring out how we bring on new businesses as customers or partners. And so on deck is largely a B-2C business, right? It's individual choosing the fellowship for their own investing in their own learning, whether they're founders, angels, investors, whatever, whatever persona they are. That's largely the problem and the people entering the program. On where we think there's an opportunity with businesses is on the career side. So companies that are scaling, we think will be willing to invest in their people's development. This happens already today in lots of different ways. And we think OnDeck is a place where they can send their teams, right? So product management teams send your PMs to OnDeck product management community, so on and so forth. And uh, that's kind of what we're calling L&D, learning and development, because that's typically the budgets it comes out of. And so trying to figure out how we build sales, customer success, et cetera to uh, support that use case. We go to series B or series C company, here's all the value we provide. You should be sending your people. We're gonna send five people in the next cohort, et cetera, et cetera, right? So that's the main piece of it or one main piece of it. And the second is partners. So we have this large network with lots of different personas and value propositions. So companies that wanna partner with us to add more value to the fellows in lots of different ways. So if you're a software provider in a specific vertical, you may wanna partner with us on a fellowship on that vertical to be able to give discounts or perks, or even help with implementation or whatever around that audience, right? Uh, That's a niche use case, all the way to like full network-wide cross-fellowship partnerships where there's just lots of things you can do. So this is just an example. We, maybe I won't say a specific example, but imagine a large software company that provides all kinds of services to anybody, right? Uh, massive big tech company. You may want to partner with us because there are early stage businesses, that you can many levels, right? Partner with, provides services to, uh, potentially acquire. There's investment side of it. And then there's career professionals again, that you could sell software to, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of different opportunities to partner to, And basically my role is figuring out how we interact with businesses on those two sides.
1: Did you talk a little bit more about the, the creative side? Are you suggesting that like, if you're a series B, series C growing company, you send like PMs to give lecture series or what, what is the the vision there?
0: To be part of the community. So to grow your own PMs, right? So today, a lot of people go to things like conferences. You might take a specific course on Coursera, or you might take a, a specific opportunity to invest in your own learning. Right. And the way it typically works is there's team level budgets. There are centralized budgets and there are combinations or spectrum. And so depending on the company the, your manager might be, I've got hundred thousand dollars for my team of 20 people for the year. And I'll allocate to whoever asks for whatever to the company might have, each person gets $2,000 a year. Right. Uh, and so we are seeing a significant percentage of these careers communities getting reimbursed from their companies. And so there's just a natural motion here. And so how do we also talk to the companies directly and say, Hey, X number of people from your company are already part of our community. Here's the value they're finding. Why don't we talk about sending more of them, more of your teams? The one thing we are going to be thoughtful about is still selection process. So if we sell to a company, they want to buy 10 seats each year, then they might have a bunch of candidates in mind but they will still have to be accepted into the community by the program director and it wouldn't be automatic and that goes back to our network quality and all those kinds of things so that's a little wrinkle that we will preserve but beyond that it's just about hey this is a common natural thing all companies do and we think there's value in them sending it to OnDeck instead and so like
2: um now if i'm a company and i am the maybe you don't have a director of learning and development when you're service B or service C, right? It's like the COO or whoever this who's like, yeah, that's, this is a, this is a big problem. I don't know too much about it, but I do know that Coursera is knocking on my door. Udacity just sent me an email and those courses sound interesting. DeGreed has their little like learning management system too, bundled with other types of content. And then, uh, I got some employees taking Reforged, some people are like, maybe I'm leaving submitting receipts for, for redemption, the whole thing is a mess. And then, uh, Antec sounds cool, but this whole world is kind of a metric. Right um, what, yeah, tell me how, what's the conversation with them? Like, and what, what do you think is a path to winning in which they can identify a clear, um, spot and a path for new and many members of your team to, to join on deck.
0: Yeah. There's sort of a few things that I'm playing around with. So one is over time, it's about shifting the perception and mindset, right? Where it's not about, uh, again, traditional learning. You can invest in a Coursera course or in any, not to pick a Coursera, but you can invest in any kind of formal, here's a point in time, intensive, more intensive learning approach, but. That's not necessarily how people learn today and not necessarily how people learn best anymore, and that's evolving. And it's more about continuous on-demand, just-in-time access to the specific problem you're facing. That's far more valuable. And if an employee in any part of your organization has access to that kind of in-time learning from people who have been through the same kinds of things with, if we can get into the details and nuance with them and help them through it, that's far more creative to your organization as a whole. Then sending them to a course where six months, one, it might be more theoretical. Two, six months later, support runs out. Three, they may or may not retain things. And so that's a, a big part of it is how and why people are learning is different. And we're more in line with that and it's continuous. And then two is kind of like that uh, combination of things I mentioned at the top, right? deck brings three things together. One is that community. So we help your people find similar people peers in a similar stage of their journey. And so they are a lot more, uh, and this is straight from a lot of our fellows, it's like, it's like magic when I know you're going through the exact same thing and you're speaking my language and you're not either talking down to me or I have to kind of, it doesn't feel like I'm pulling out a favor from you, but we're in this together. That's, it's like magic. And so that the community element, the second is we still provide world-class content and curriculum. And it's just about how we deliver it. It's not necessarily structured in this three to four month long packet. Instead, it's sessions that you can consume and it's available async as well. So again, back to that on-demand piece, and it's also a combination of live things too. And then, and it's delivered by experts, right? So people who are seasoned leaders and building a lot of this and at the forefront of it. And then third, it's the ROI. You don't have to invest three hours a week for six months, or in in a lot of cases, maybe even more, right? It's not five days to go to a conference where they're not working. You can invest as an individual in a fellowship. What is right for you at that point in time? And the rough guideline is between one and five hours a week. And there's certain weeks where people don't engage and certain weeks where they engage a lot. But again, it's dependent on what you need and where you can give into the community. And the price point is very reasonable, two to $5,000 per fellowship. Uh, And so that ROI is like way better Especially because again, back to that, like just in time aspect, you're not, but you can tap into it anytime you need for whatever specific need you need. That's kind of the mix of value that I think is going to address a lot of, or it would be different. And, and so who,
1: who are the customers that you're talking to? Are they mainly like series B to Series C? And then my second question on top of that is like, what is their breakdown and what is the breakdown in terms of their approach to learning and development? Is it like we dictate what our employees get to have access to? Or is it laissez-faire, like all the employees get to choose and whatever they choose, they get to do
0: Yeah. We're still learning a lot early days. I think it's, it it is pretty all over the place. I think we're still kind of consolidating. What are the personas and what it looks like? So, so one, it depends on the size of the company. Two, it depends on to some degree, like cultural elements. You could get series B companies that are very laissez-faire. And like, I've talked to founders that are like, I know my LTV of a customer. And if this person, if investing this dollar amount can get me one extra customer per year, I know it's worth it. So it's a no brainer. And so for me, it's just like, as long as it's under this number and that number, it could be like, I've heard 10, $15,000 per year per person. I don't really care. And so there, like, that's much more laissez faire. And there are companies that are very regimented. Like you have an automatic $300 a month or $200 a month budget. Anything on top of that has to get approved. And then there's team level budgets where it's like, we're only going to do this for like team events. And then there's centralized things where it's like, if you want to do a course, you have to submit a you know, proposal and all of those kinds of things. And all of this can just be series B companies. So I, I it, it actually does from my early sample of conversations. So I'm sure there are more trends that I'll get into and learn about. Yeah. So my, my rough thesis is that for the B, C kind of high growth companies, it's probably going to be largely the functional leaders that can navigate. So one, make the decisions for their own teams and figure out the policy. If they don't have it, have the budget already. Or two, they have the budget and they can just make the decision. And then as we move up to enterprise, uh, then it starts to become maybe more centralized. And even in that world, we're not positioned, this is an interesting challenge. If we were to go to Amazon today and they tell us we want to send a 1,000 product managers to an on-deck fellowship, Well, our entire product management community is probably like a few hundred people right now. We're not going to accept a thousand employees from one company at once. Right. Uh, so we're not ready for that. And then over time, what does that even look like? So there's a whole bunch of enterprise related challenges that we need to figure out and what we might do instead is like, let's do a pilot with like five people. We can do that. So send your best five. We will decide whether they accept or not. And then we will test it out. And then that might open the door for like building relationships with different parts of Amazon and different product leads who may have their own budgets. And then over time, we may have more and more Amazon people, but we still have to think about network quality and utility and all those kinds of things. So it gets interesting.
1: That is not what I expected. I expected more like, say, fair approach in the Series B to Series C. That's, that's fascinating. That you have to write a yeah. proposal for a Series B company. That'd be
0: intense. I mean, yep. it's like serial
2: founders <laughs> where if you've done it enough, you want to essentially ramp up on process and rigor. Uh, before necessarily well, so your like product yeah, and market yeah. maturity, but yeah, I hear that you guys launched a uh, on deck ed tech fellowship program recently. Do you want to tell the listeners about that and how they can get involved?
0: Yeah, so uh, on deck ed tech is one of our sector programs. So like we talked about, we have a whole startup side of fellowships and programs where there tend to be a few different personas. So within our sector programs, there are folks who are founders, uh, some investors but there are also folks who are builders and operators. And uh, the common thread is uh, interest and engagement in that specific sector. So in the case of on, uh, on deck ed EdTech, we have, again, entrepreneurs who are interested in starting EdTech businesses. Uh, we have people who are building businesses already and operating businesses. And I think increasingly, we're gonna have uh, people more on the academic side and so on as well. So if you're someone in any of those personas, and over time, ideally we'd also start to have actual educators and keep building that part of the community too. So if you're someone in any of those personas and you want to be part of the fellowship, like I described, core things are the community where you get peers, who are in similar stages, you, uh, the curriculum from world-class speakers. And it's a give and take model rooted in spirit of service. Um, if that's appealing and interesting, then I would highly recommend because it's a lot of fun and we're going to be having more and more cohorts, um, each year.
1: And so, when would listeners need to sign up
0: and when would the next cohort be? It's a great question. I would say like the, the best place to go is because we're launching cohorts all the time. It's hard to keep track of which one's launching when. Uh, I would say on our website, there's a ed tech section. And so it should be posted there pretty clearly on when the next chord is. But I would imagine it's within the next month or two. We will drop a link into our show notes as
2: well to make sure listeners can find it. Put yourself on the wait list. That's right. Yep. Just Perfect. Well, Vic, this is such an incredible conversation. Thanks so much for joining us, and hopefully we'll get to do
0: it again soon. Really appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be on again and talk about probably any other things in our tech. This was a lot of fun, and you guys are doing a great job. So excited to hear what this uh, turns out as.
1: All right, listeners, that wraps up our episode on On Deck. Again, if you have any feedback, please send us an email at learnandpublicfm at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. It's the only way we get better. But listeners, we'll see you next time. See you next time.